This is Henry McCarthy coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus, poets and writers. And we've got something great going for you today. We've got great poets in their own words. It's from a narrative, uh, Poetry Speaks, and it's an anthology. And it's going to be narrated by Charles Osgood. So you're going to be hearing Charles introduce some of these poets. And Ivy Shepard, great producer here, is working with me on it today. So we're going to go right to Langston Hughes and listen to him. And then you will hear some other poets that you have not heard in a long time. This never-before-released recording of Langston Hughes was made at the Library of Congress in 1959. In it, Hughes talks about having his work discovered by the then-famous poet Rachel Lindsay while he was working as a busboy. By the time of the recording, Hughes was a well-known author himself and talks about the themes of his poetry, including music, black life in America, and the struggle for racial equality. Here, Hughes reads some of his most famous poems, including his first, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. This is The Negro Speaks of Rivers, one of my earliest poems written in 1920, just after I came out of high school. The way this poem came to be written was that I was going to Mexico to visit my father, who lived in Mexico City, and on the train going across the Mississippi River, just outside St. Louis, I looked out the window and I saw this great muddy river flowing down toward the heart of the south, and I began to think about what this river meant to the Negro people, how, in a sense, our history was linked to this river, how in slavery time, my grandmother told me that to be sold down the Mississippi was one of the worst things that could happen to a Negro slave. And then uh, I remembered that I'd read about Abraham Lincoln going down the Mississippi as a young man, and he went on a raft to New Orleans, and he saw human beings bought and sold in the slave market there, and he was so horrified by this that never forgot it. And many years later, of course, we know that it was Lincoln who signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And so uh, as the train went on into the gathering dusk, because it had been about sunset when we crossed the river, I took my father's letter out of my pocket and began to write down on the back of his letter this poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers, I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. The secret to writing light verse, according to the master of the discipline, Ogden Nash, is to show the other side of poetry in reverse. In this 1959 recording, Nash goes on to declare, the light versifier can be just as unhappy as the serious versifiers. Nash even had a sense of humor about the importance of his writing use his own words again, all I've said has been said before and better, but I have been able to support a family by saying it again and saying it worse. 
Nash drew his material largely from the headlines of his time. All the same, his hilarious insights into marriage, family life, and even his frustrations with the changing language still seem fresh today. Nash is the perfect reader for the poems I Do, I Will, I Have, and I Must Tell You About My Novel. Even his voice is funny. I do, I will, I have. How wise I am to have instructed the doorman to order my carriage. I am about to volunteer a definition of marriage. Just as I know that there are two Hagens, Walter and Copen, I know that marriage is a legal and religious alliance entered into by a man who can't sleep with a window shut and a woman who can't sleep with a window open. Moreover, just as I am unsure of the difference between flora and fauna and flotsam and jetsam, I'm quite sure that marriage is the alliance of two people, one of whom never remembers birthdays and the other never forgets them. And he refuses to believe there is a leak in the water pipe or the gas pipe, and she is convinced she is about to asphyxiate or drown. And she says, quick, get up and get my hairbrushes off the windowsill, it's raining in. And he replies, oh, they're all right, it's only raining straight down. That is why marriage is so much more interesting than divorce because it's the only known example of the happy meeting of the immovable object and the irresistible force. So I hope that husbands and wives will continue to debate and combat over everything debatable and combatable, because I believe a little incompatibility is the spice of life, particularly if he has income and she is parable. I must tell you about my novel. My grandpa wasn't salty, no hero he of fable, his English wasn't faulty, he wore a coat at table. His character lacked the color of either saint or satyr. His life was rather duller than that of Walter Pater. Look at Grandpa, take a look, how can I write a book? His temper wasn't crusty, he shone not forth majestic for barroom exploits lusty or tyranny domestic. He swung not on the gallows, but went to his salvation while toasting stale marshmallows, his only dissipation. Look at Grandpa, take a look, how can I write a book? My Uncle John was cautious, he never slipped his anchor. His probity was nauseous, in fact, he was a banker. He hubbed no hubba hubbas, and buckled he no swashes. He wore a pair of rubbers inside of his galoshes. Look at my uncle, take a look, how can I write a book? My other uncle, Herbie, just once enlarged his orbit, the day he crushed his derby while cheering James J. Corbett. No toper he or wencher, he backed nor horse nor hoory. His raciest adventure summons to the jury. Look at my uncles, take a look, how can I write a book? Round my ancestral menfolk there hangs no spicy aura. I have no racy kinfolk from Rome or Glockamora. Not nitwits, not Napoleons, the mill they were the run of. My family weren't Mongolians, then whom can I make fun of? Look, no book. William Stafford was a master of the plain-spoken poem. Part of this recording comes from his inaugural reading upon being named poetry consultant to the Library of Congress in 1970. Stafford told the audience, I want to take a stand for writers who use the language we all use and enhance it a bit. I don't even think you need to enhance it very much. Stafford was very much a Western writer and a writer of conscience. His Kansas roots and his stand as a conscientious objector during World War II are easy to identify in his work. And so is a sense of optimism, 
Unlike many poets who are unhappy and unsettled, William Stafford spent his life with one wife, spent most of his teaching career in Oregon, and exuded an aura of kindness and respect toward most everyone he encountered. Even his voice, as he reads, The Star in the Hills, sounds like that of a man who is comfortable in his own skin. The Star in the Hills. A star hit in the hills behind our house, up where the grass turns brown, touching the sky. Meteors have hit the world before, but this was near, and since TV. Few saw, but many felt the shock. The state of California owns that land, and out from shore three miles. And any stars that come will be roped off and viewed on weekdays, eight to five. A guard who took the oath of loyalty and denied any police record told me this. If you don't have a police record yet, you could take the oath and get a job if California should be hit by another star. I'd promise to be loyal to California and to guard any star that hit it, I said or any place three miles out from shore, unless the star was bigger than the state, in which case I'd be loyal to it. But he said no exceptions were allowed, and he leaned against the state-owned meteor so calm and puffed a cork-tip cigarette that I looked down and traced with my foot in the dust and thought again and said, Okay, any star. In 1950, Gwendolyn Brooks became the first black poet to win the Pulitzer Prize in poetry. She was actually more famous for her live readings than for her books, as the books were often hard to find. And Brooks gave many readings until her death in December 2000. In these two recordings made at the Library of Congress, we hear first the voice of the young Brooks reading in 1961, and then the emerging leader in 1969, just about the time Brooks began to associate with the poets of the black arts movement. It was at that time that Brooks decided to allow only black-owned presses to publish her work and embraced writing the word black with a capital B. The first two poems, A Song in the Front Yard and Kitchenette Building, are early works that describe black life in Brooks's native Chicago. The third, We Real Cool, is among the most famous of American poems. A song in the front yard. I've stayed in the front yard all my life. I want to peek at the back, where it's rough and untended, and hungry weed grows. A girl gets sick of a rose. I want to go in the backyard now, and maybe down the alley, to where the charity children play. I want a good time today. They do some wonderful things. They have some wonderful fun. My mother sneers, but I say it's fine how they don't have to go in at quarter to nine. My mother, she tells me that Johnny May will grow up to be a bad woman, that George will be taken to jail sooner or late. On account of last winter, he sold our back gate. But I say it's fine, honest I do, and I'd like to be a bad woman too, and wear the brave stockings of night black lace and strut down the streets with paint on my face. Kitchenette building. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan. Grayed in and gray. Dream makes a giddy sound 
not strong like rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man. But could a dream send up through onion fumes its white and violet, fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall, flutter or sing an aria down these rooms? Even if we were willing to let it in, had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin. We wonder, but not well, not for a minute. Since number five is out of the bathroom now, we think of lukewarm water, hope to get in it. This one is a distillation of my um, interest in some pool players that I saw in a pool room near my home during school hours. And uh, you might have asked, why aren't these young men in school? And I asked the same question and tried to uh, distill their own feelings for my uh, use. We real cool, the pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. Artists often say that they grew up feeling they didn't fit in anywhere. Philip Larkin spent most of his life working as a librarian at the University of Hull in England. And the territory he covers with insight is unfulfilled expectations. In The Old Fools, recorded in 1974, Larkin is even more cynical, yet his biting wit about the woes of aging is hilariously funny. The Old Fools. What do they think has happened, the old fools, to make them like this? Do they somehow suppose it's more grown up when your mouth hangs open and drools and you keep on pissing yourself and can't remember who called this morning? Or that, if they only chose, they could alter things back to when they danced all night or went to their wedding or sloped arms some September? Or do they fancy there's really been no change and they've always behaved as if they were crippled or tight or sat through days of thin, continuous dreaming, watching light move. If they don't, and they can't, it's strange. Why aren't they screaming? At death, you break up. The bits that were you start speeding away from each other forever, with no one to see. It's only oblivion, true. We had it before, but then it was going to end and was all the time merging with a unique endeavour to bring to bloom the million-petaled flower of being here. Next time, you can't pretend there'll be anything else. And these are the first signs. Not knowing how, not hearing who, the power of choosing gone. Their looks show that they're for it. Ash hair, toad hands, prune face dried into lines. How can they ignore it? Perhaps... Being old is having lighted rooms inside your head and people in them, acting. People you know yet can't quite name. Each looms like a deep loss restored from known doors turning, setting down a lamp, smiling from a stair, extracting a known book from the shelves, or sometimes only the rooms themselves, chairs and a fire burning, the blown bush at the window, 
or the sun's faint friendliness on the wall, some lonely rain-ceased midsummer evening. That is where they live, not here and now, but where all happened once. This is why they give an air of baffled absence, trying to be there, yet being here, for the rooms grow farther, leaving incompetent cold, the constant wear and tear of taken breath, and them crouching below extinction's alp, the old fools, never perceiving how near it is. This must be what keeps them quiet. The peak that stays in view wherever we go, for them, is rising ground. Can they never tell what is dragging them back, and how it will end? Not at night, not when the strangers come, never throughout the whole hideous inverted childhood? Well, we shall find out. Frank O'Hara was very much a poet of his generation. O'Hara flourished in the New York City of the 1950s, where he worked as a curator at the Museum of Modern Art and was friends with all the important artists of the time, including Willem de Kooning and Larry Rivers. O'Hara's poems were often inspired by the visual arts, but he also drew inspiration from dance, music, and popular culture. The two poems here, Ave Maria and Poem, commonly known as Lana Turner Has Collapsed, are rollicking high-energy celebrations of the movies. This poem's called Ave Maria. Mothers of America, let your kids go to the movies. Get them out of the house so they won't know what you're up to. It's true that fresh air is good for the body, but what about the soul? That grows in darkness, embossed by silvery images. And when you grow old, as grow you must, they won't hate you, they won't criticize you, they won't know. They'll be in some glamorous country they first saw on a Saturday afternoon or playing hooky. They may even be grateful to you for their first sexual experience, which only cost you a quarter and didn't upset the peaceful home. They will know where candy bars come from and gratuitous bags of popcorn, as gratuitous as leaving the movie before it's over with a pleasant stranger whose apartment is in the Heaven on Earth building near the Williamsburg Bridge. Oh, mothers, you will have made the little tykes so happy because if nobody does pick them up in the movies, they won't know the difference. And if somebody does, it'll be sheer gravy. And they'll have been truly entertained either way instead of hanging around the yard or up in their room hating you prematurely, since you won't have done anything horribly mean yet, except keeping them from the darker joys. It's unforgivable, the latter, so don't blame me if you won't take this advice, and the family breaks up, and your children grow old and blind in front of a TV set, seeing movies you wouldn't let them see when they were young. The next poem's called Poem. <laughs> Lana Turner has collapsed. I was trotting along and suddenly it started raining and snowing and you said it was hailing, but hailing hits you on the head hard so it was really snowing and raining and I was in such a hurry to meet you but the traffic was acting exactly like the sky and suddenly I see a headline, Lana Turner has collapsed. There is no snow in Hollywood. There is no rain in California. I have been to lots of parties and acted perfectly disgraceful but I never actually collapsed. Oh, Lana Turner, we love you. Get up. Since her death by suicide at the age of 30, Sylvia Plath's poetry has won millions of devoted readers drawn by her extraordinary ability to express anger and pain in poetry. 
In this recording, made in Boston in late 1962, Platt's voice reflects the edginess and raw emotion of the poems. Daddy is a rant against her father, whom she calls a Nazi in the poem. Though her father was born in Germany, he lived in the United States from the age of 15 and died before the U.S. entered World War II. Lady Lazarus recounts the poet's several attempts at suicide. Daddy, you do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or her chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach du, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common, my Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Eek, 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 eek. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck and my tarok pack and my tarok pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you with your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygoo, and your neat moustache, and your Aryan eye, bright blue. Panzerman, Panzerman, oh, you, not God, but a swastika, so black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, and the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that, no not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do. But they pulled me out of the sack and they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a Mein Kampf look and a love of the rack and the screw. And I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root. The voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year. Seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart, and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. 
They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through. You've been listening today to some great poets on Poets and Writers, and I want to share several of my poems with you, and some you have requested, and some I just wanted to share with you guys, and Ivy Shepherd, our great producer, and one is never read a how-to book. You know, I go around to a lot of poets and a lot of writers, and there's this great debate between style and work and how you get the job done, and editing and so forth. And then there are other ideas where you just put your emotions out and let your heart go with it. So this is a poem I wrote several years ago. Never read a how-to book. Between Whitman's Leaves of Grass, Great Poets of the World, and Charles Bukowski's Notes of a Dirty Old Man were how to read poetry, how to write poetry, and how to present poetry. Obscene titles, totally obscene titles, I started to grab the books and stomp on the covers. However, that was not acceptable for my age and station in life. May I tell you something? May I tell you something? Never. Never read a how-to book. Never. Go deep into your soul. Go inside your heart. Feel the rhythm of your joy and anger. Then hurl your message to that friend or stranger who is much lonelier than you and who has read far too many how-to books. All right, another poem for you is we, you know, we've had some great poets on today. Goodness gracious, Langston Hughes, Gwendolyn Brooks, and on and on, Sylvia Plath, too, there. You know, that's a that's a dark one, so I want to follow up with, uh, shall we say, I, I guess a little message for you here, and this is uh, one that I share from time to time. It's called The Energy Thief. And I'm going to read this one. Let me back up and read Little Pink Shoes, and then I'll read The Energy Thief. And Little Pink Shoes, you know, I spent a lot of time in Mexico, and we have a lot of immigration aspects and things going on in the news, and the president is dealing with it, I think, as best he can. And we're all this debate of immigration and how many folks who come to the country and who can't come and who can. But I wrote this from a newspaper article and thinking about my friends down in Puebla, Mexico that I hung out with for many nights. Little Pink Shoes. Where's the small brown girl who left the little pink shoes in the Arizona desert? The little pink shoes she danced in on a warm summer night in Puebla, Mexico. Why did she leave them in the desert near the plastic bottles and the abandoned backpack? Why is it illegal to wear little pink shoes? And where is the small brown girl? The girl with the smiling eyes who danced in the Zocalo on a warm summer night in Puebla, Mexico. And the last poem I'm going to leave you with today on Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7. And I want to thank Ivy Shepherd for her all her work in editing this show. And this is called Energy Thief. And, you know, I talk to people, and some people have high energy and some have low, but some of it is what we tell ourselves. Energy Thief. You will find the energy thief late at night in early morning appearing sweetly, softly, sullenly, saying, be safe, be careful. You're bad, you're ugly. Come with me, and I will give you guilt. I will give you dependency. Turn, turn away quickly to the light. Fill the light. Forgive the energy thief. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy saying, Do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stay or still away. 
I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Thanks for listening. Funny face, I love you. Funny face, I need you. My whole world's wrapped up in you. When the road I walk seems all uphill and the colors in my rainbow turn blue you kiss the tears away you smile at me and say funny face funny face i love you funny face i love you funny face